Hello, you're listening to Sexual Transmissions with me, Esther, and sexual health doctors, Jar Jar and Frankie. Have you ever thought of going for a sexual health checkup, but were too embarrassed at what they might ask? Are your sexual fantasies very different to your sexual reality? Have you had your fill of pterodactyl porn and you're wondering where to go next? Whether you're a sexual novice or seasoned in the sheets, this is a chance to talk about sex and to think about pleasurable, safe ways of having sex that will help protect your body and your mind. From testing to infections, sex-positive mentality to gender identity, chemsex to fetish, each week we'll talk about a different aspect of sex, sexual health and well-being. We're all thinking about sex, so let's talk about it. Welcome to Sexual Transmissions. You're tuned in to Sexual Transmissions, your very own sexual health show. I'm Esther, and I'm here with the resident sex experts, Jar Jar. Hey there. And Frankie. Hi. Well, lovely listeners, it's certainly been a wee while since we visited your ears, and it's an absolute joy to be back there again. Let's be honest, it's, you know, we've missed it. We've missed being there. Um, so hello again, um, and welcome for any newcomers as well. Lovely to meet you. First and foremost, a very happy Pride Month to you all. Um, it's been 51 years since the Stonewall riots and 50 years since the first Pride March held in the States in 1971. Absolutely wild because really 51 years, it's just not long at all, is it? So one year later, in 1972, the UK followed suit and we had our first one with about 2,000 people marching through London. Um, so I thought it would be worth going right back to the start um, and hearing from someone who was there in New York for the very first Pride March. So over to Mark Segal, whose voice I can't do, but I will just say his words. So Mark um, was an early member of the Gay Liberation Front and Marshal of the first Pride March in New York City. And he said, the Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day March was as revolutionary and chaotic as everything we did that first year after the Stonewall riots. The march was a reflection of us, out loud and proud. So I guess thinking from that to fast forwarding all the way to 2020, we're still in lockdown. Yes, it's being eased, but this is a very different year for marking such an important occasion, um, such an important movement that, you know, the work's not over. So given the fact that things are virtual now, you know, price going to be a bit different this year. So um, Jaja and Frankie, what are your thoughts on how you're going to virtually mark and celebrate this year? Um, well, uh, that is a great question, Esther. I guess, I guess thinking about it, I absolutely love Pride. You know, I've been lucky enough to celebrate Pride many different places from New York, you know, LA, London, even Madrid last year, which was a Ooh, lot of fun. was that? That was pretty wild. I mean, it's a beautiful city and it was just so great seeing everyone outside in this gorgeous weather. You know, Madrid has tons of fountains. It's just a, a beautiful landscape city with loads of different families, so many families. That's what really um, kind of struck me in Madrid was it like kids, parents, grandpas, mm. grandmas, like, and it was just really, really moving. And I think kind of going, going off that, you know, this pride, although we might not be able to take to the streets and have our traditional parades, um, you know, due to social distancing measures and, you know, coming off lockdown. One thing I will say is that maybe, it, you know, 
this is the time for us to, to take this opportunity to kind of like really reflect on what pride stands for. You know, we've come a long way from 50 years and I think sometimes, you know, it's great to have all the glitz, the glamour, the fun, the, the floats, the parties, but maybe this is the year that we really just sit down and reflect on how far we've come as mm -hmm. a community, you know, as LGBTQAIZXY, you know, <laughs> everyone included. Um, and there's ways to celebrate using, you know, with your friends and family, you know, you can still go to the park and meet people outdoors using social distance rules. You can have um, Zoom parties, you can do whatever you want, celebrate Pride. Um, however you want, but I think it's it's a good opportunity for us to really kind of take a moment, sit back, look at how far we've come and think back to what Pride really stands for. And that's really about acceptance and um, moving forward and, and realizing that we're all people, we're all humans, we deserve all the same rights, we, de we deserve all the same amount of love, um, we deserve to love who we want. And yeah, I hope people hold that in their hearts this year. Beautifully put. Yeah, and I think, yeah, given this time that we do have, maybe that is, we can take stock in a way that usually life wouldn't really permit us to as easily. Um, so maybe that can be, yeah, maybe that can be a, a time for that. What about you, Frankie? I really just could not agree with Jar Jar more. I, I know, think right? This, this time has been, you know, 2020 has been pretty mad in case no one else yeah. noticed. Um, <laughs> but it, it's really, really silver linings are that we can stop take time, really reflect on what pride means. Um, yeah, exactly as Jaja said, the right to be who you are, the right to love who you love um, and not apologize for that. And I think it's important that people remember that pride is a protest. People from, yes. from the outside see, uh, look, pride is a wonderful time. I like one of the highlights of my year last, um, last year was marching in pride with the clinic I was working with. And it was just fantastic just to see so many like-minded people oh, wow. having the best time of their lives. Uh, it's really important to remember that there's that is this wonderful celebration of how far we've come um, but it's also a time that we can look and see how much further we need to go and you know yeah. you need to protect transgender people non-binary people there's still more things to go forward with just simple gay rights you know it's it's actually like you know there's still countries where you know it's completely unacceptable to be in a relationship with someone of the same gender you know people there's so much homophobia in the world and we can mm. be in this really wonderful little bubble sometimes um especially in the cities um and it's a wonderful opportunity to celebrate that but also a time to remember that there's lots of places where people can't be who they are and we have so much more work to do um so yeah it's a time to be happy but pensive and reflective exactly like Jar Jar said as well yes I guess that sort of quite neatly brings us on to um, today's, today's topic in terms of thinking about how far we've come, but also how much more there is to do and the importance of protest and why that ends up happening. So because of, um, yeah, as I, as I mentioned to um, our lovely listeners, we had a bit of a, a bit of a hiatus um, and we'd originally actually um, recorded an episode um, on vaginal health, but given what's been going on in, in the world at the moment and the, importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. Also, we've been thinking and listening and hearing all about the recent COVID-19 reports that explored why 
BAME communities were disproportionately affected by the virus um, and are disproportionately affected by the virus. So we kind of thought this is the time and, and we wanted to kind of have an episode that really focuses on um, the response to that and tries to understand it as well and to think most about what are the inequalities um, in sexual health. So with that in mind, Jaja and Frankie, can you kind of set the scene for us? Um, obviously, it's a massive topic, but um, can you kind of shed some light about, you know, what we know? What do we know about these health inequalities that are affecting BAME communities? Yeah, um, absolutely, Esther. So as uh, our listeners might know, I am a public health doctor, and this is what we focus on health inequalities. It is something that has been there for a long, long time. And it's now as a result of, you know, the pandemic and what's come out of COVID, people are talking about it now. And we are thrilled because this is something that we have been trying to raise, trying to highlight, trying to address for many, many years now. And I think it's really important to say that COVID you know, 19, did not create health inequalities. It helped highlight health inequalities in a way that probably the world and communities and the nation has not really seen before because it was so widespread. It was a platform that everyone was watching um, and it's now drawn a lot of attention, which I think it's great. It's horrible that we haven't health inequalities, but now people are looking at it and now we can do something about it. And, you know, the reports that Public Health England have put out, you know, albeit, you know, their timing on some of those releases were very questionable, mm -hmm. um, I would say, um, you know, and I think, you know, for those that don't know, there were two reports and one was kind of released later than the first one. And I think it definitely should have, in my personal opinion, should have been released together um, because there was a lot of um, really important information in that second report that was released late. But nevertheless, particularly the second report that came out, I think, was a fantastic way of, of carrying forward research and looking at how we can think about really, really complex, quite complex issues in both scientific ways, but also in community ways. How do we approach things as a community? Because the fact of the matter is, and, and I think what I want our listeners to know and kind of take away is that health inequalities is really, really complex. There's no one way of looking at it um, and there's no one way to tackle it. And it's going to take communities, nationwide efforts. It's going to take everybody. It's everyone's issue. Um, so I just want to kind of start off by saying that. Um, and health inequalities are definitely there um, in sexual health as well, and, and they're known to be there. So we know that certain groups are more likely to have poor sexual health, and what poor sexual health can mean many different things. So more likely to get a sexually transmitted infection, more likely to not have treatment, you know, need more complex treatment, more yeah. likely to have barriers to sexual health, barriers to accessing a clinic, all of these things equal bad sexual or poor sexual health. And particular groups in um, sexual health would be men who have sex with men, and I mean gay men, bisexual men, even men who identify as heterosexual, you know, some, sometimes they have sex with men as well, but that equals, you know, a risk there. And STI rates, for example, gonorrhea in men who have sex with men, it's six times higher the rates of gonorrhea than in the general population. Syphilis, four times higher than the general population. These are massive differences in STIs in this group. Young people are also there. 
40% of all of gonorrhea diagnosis in the UK are among young people. And when I say young people, I mean people who are 25 and under, age 25 and under. So usually we say 16 to 25 is the type of data that we collect. And 60% of all chlamydia diagnosis is roughly are among young people who are 25 and under. It's a massive group of people, you know. Um, and yeah, and think about it. When you're 25 and years and younger, you know, if you're an 18-year-old, yeah. you don't know what's going on, you know. I'm surprised, you know, we're even getting, it's great that we're even getting this many tested to have this data. I would just like to say that. But like, these are potentially very vulnerable people, people who, and, and this is not the case for everyone, but you know, potentially people who might be scared, don't know what to do, don't know, you know, how to access care. So um, these are an at-risk group. And of course, you know, in, in a strain very similar to COVID, those of um, particularly black minority ethnicities, so not necessarily Asian ethnicities, but black minority ethnicities are at high risk. Again, going back to gonorrhea rates, four times higher in BME groups, you know, than general population. Um, and BME groups have the highest rates of STI diagnosis of any other ethnicities in the UK. It's really, really important to recognize that. How, how much awareness do you think is currently in these groups at the moment about like their, their relative risk to all, to all of these things, considering being an at-risk group, but has awareness changed or what do you, what do you think? You know, I think that certainly these are, these three groups, you know, MSM, young people and BME groups are known to the sexual health community as being the highest risk. There's been lots of work being poured into these, these groups. You know, think about all the HIV awareness campaigns that you've seen mm -hmm. around MSM, you know, particularly, you know, LGBTQ communities that you've seen. Think about, you know, the young person's chlamydia screening in the nation. So that's a way of targeting younger people. BME groups, you know, I feel that this is an area that I feel there's a lot more work to be done, to be honest with you, um, particularly. And I think using this platform going forward, you know, in the light of COVID and, and the kind of conversations that have been going on around BME groups, this is the time to really pick up on all sorts of health inequalities, not just COVID, but, you know, including sexual health inequalities and how we target these groups, how we use our, you know, community sector, you know, you know, our community organizations, our faith organizations, you know, because BME is a, is, is a broad term as well. You know, you have people who are Afro-Caribbean, you have people from, from parts of Africa, you know, all of these different areas, you know, and, you know, Africa is a continent, not a country, as many people seem to sometimes forget, you know, there's lots of different groups and beliefs areas, you know, within these, within these groups. So we need more targeted awareness raising and, and intervention. So, so there's definitely a lot more work to be done, Esther. But one thing I, I do want to want to highlight as well as part of this group is, is really those living in poverty, those who are we call quote unquote socioeconomically deprived. So these are our poorest and, and I think um, those living in poverty and these people are massive risk of STIs, just as we found out that they're at massive risk of poor outcomes, death and severe illness of COVID. And, you know, I've done some local research in, in, in the area I worked and we've worked out that if you live in the, in the most impoverished areas of the borough I work in, you're three times more likely to have an STI than if you live in the, in the least deprived. So in the most wealthy, you know, area, that's a massive difference. And kind of tying it back into the ethnicity, and I'll leave the stats and figures after this one, but um, studies have shown that here in the UK, the most wealthy groups um, of people, most wealthy, most wealthy areas, 4% are BME of the most wealthy groups. 22% are white British. In the 
least wealthy groups, so the most, those living in the highest levels of poverty, 47% are BME wow. and 17% are white British. So there are massive differences in, our, in poverty and poverty yeah. and ethnicity are linked. Poverty and poor health and sexual health are linked. And um, excuse me, ethnicity and poor sexual health are linked. And there's lots of other different factors that go into it, but these are really, really kind of, I just want to highlight these as a very, very strong triad, particularly mm. in sexual health and, and really not even particularly in sexual health, in health in general, that um, we really need to start to um, unpick. Absolutely. I mean, hearing you, hearing you say those stats, especially on some of the different sexual health diseases and also some that I just I was very surprised by some of those statistics and also um, I think hearing you mention the different at-risk groups I was thinking that actually like we hear about them as separate groups but actually people can belong to more than one group as well and Absolutely. I guess my question is does the data reflect that or um, would it would it help if it did? So dealing with data is very very limited your, your data is only as good as what you record and we encounter that issue with COVID when we realize that on death certificates, we don't record ethnicity. So then you have to go back and try to figure out from a death certificate whose ethnicity was where, and we don't record someone's level of poverty. You get that from census data. Mm. How often do we have a census? How many times, you know, we, we're talking years in between. People's situations change over exactly. you know, months. I mean, look at, look at what's happened this year. Do you know how many people have been plunged into poverty because of COVID? So my point is, is, is saying like, the data is not perfect. It's not, yeah. it's not good enough. And it's really, really hard to tease that out. You can do some tricky things that very, very clever people, much more clever than I can do with statistics and looking at, you know, adjusting things. And, and you know, even when they do adjust things, particularly in, in, in sexual health, in, in these statistics that I talked about sexual health, even when they look at, you know, they try to tease out which ones are related to ethnicity, which ones are related to poverty, the trends are still there, even if you try to adjust things around. Now, again, there's many other things that, that are factors into this, culture, education, mm. um, previous experiences, structural racism. And what I mean is like, how is society values certain races or um, cultures or certain appearances, you know, and treats people differently based on that. All of these things are much, much harder to capture. I mean, no one's going to tick, yes, I'm racist, you know, so like, how do you... Yeah, how, how do, do you, you capture that? Yeah, absolutely. That? So um, as, as late as the PHE document was, I think it was heading in, in that direction. Mm. Um, and, and it was a really interesting read. And there were some really great suggestions um, on how to move forward to kind of break down and unpick some of those issues. But I guess, as you say, you know, this is not new news, like, you know, no. in terms of these, these issues facing, um, facing the AME communities and the groups that you specified there, like, you know, yeah. the, this is not new news. So I guess with that in mind, what are some of the barriers to accessing good, you know, sexual health care, you know, because the, the care is there. So what are the barriers? How, why, why are we here, you know, and how, how can we tackle them? I would say what Jaja said is very, very important. And I think that that just really hits home how dramatic those statistics are. I say this as like, as a doctor, as a woman of color as myself, who's also in the BAME category, the COVID has brought to the table something which a lot of people have been talking about for a long time, but because it's been brought in such a dramatic way, mm. 
I feel like, and especially with Black Lives Matter, especially with all this heaviness and this change, this movement at the moment, I feel people are listening a little bit more. And exactly as Jaja says with the second report, it, you know, it actually included qualitative data. So, you know, talking to people, 4,000 people, I think, who uh, have some connection to the BAME community about why is this happening? What are we talking about? These people, we've been talking about this for years. Mm -hmm. You know, this data and these trends have been seen in birth outcomes with um, access to painkillers. I mean, there was, there was a study from 2013, 2014, which shows even in children, if you have an appendicitis, you're more likely to get adequate painkillers if you're white than if you're black. Gosh. Um, you know, there's been data about outcomes in various malignancies. There's yeah. been data about all kinds of things. These people have been shouting for a long time, but I've, I really welcome anyone to the table who's either been part of that shouting or is new to this conversation and really wants to get involved and make a difference. Yeah, you're talking about barriers to this. I think there's, there's, it's multifaceted, exactly mm. as Marja says, with some people falling into more than one group. You could be Bengali and in a low social economic um, level, or you could be a homosexual man and fall in a higher social economic. And there's going to be different things that are going to be affecting you. And we call it the intersectionality, which basically means that more than one thing is going to be determining your risk and determining what outcomes are going to help you to equalize mm. those health um, inequalities. Um, so I would say kind of some specifics and places to start is one to just absolutely kind of involve the people who this is affecting, look around in your community and that is very variable from one area to the other. Is it language barriers? Do you, have you built up trust with people? Um, in your area do they trust healthcare professionals you know even physical barriers you know for people who might may have more physical needs are there ramps is there like does your center and your place of healthcare have places that can be can be listening to people and facilitate those needs can you have people who can do um, sign language interpretation I know certainly the judge and I've, I've talked about this before sometimes with um, especially in sexual health, when you're having people do interpretations for you, you have to make sure, you know, you're in a position where you're talking about very intimate stuff with some patients that they may not feel comfortable talking yeah. to anyone with. And it's adding an extra barrier. And, you know, is that person translating every phrase you're saying specifically? I've had people when I've had to do it over the phone and the translators put the phone down on me because they thought what I was saying was a joke when I'm talking about genitalia and, and specifics of sexual health. They found it too uncomfortable oh, and rude. Unbelievable. Really? About, yeah. You know, you, you have to make sure that when your patient is able to have their side of the story in a non-judgmental place um, and environment, and if language is a barrier, they, they still should have that same access to care, that same level of care. And, you know, if you have to involve someone else, that can, that can be a very, very necessary thing to facilitate that conversation. And that can like really liberate so you can be on the same plane, but it can also sometimes mean that it puts a barrier between you and that person as well. So I think you have to be mindful of that. And with that, I think also cultural differences. Some people feel much more comfortable talking about sex than other people do. And intimate issues, some people like, you know, feel that only certain terminologies are acceptable to describe their genitalia, to describe their symptoms. And it's really not our place to tell them what's right or wrong with that. It's our place to listen and to empower those people to have a voice in a society where they're often not listened to. I was really interested to hear what you said about the, um, the access to kind of 
language and sort of translation services in order to bridge that gap and get the right information to the right person at the right time. Is that an anomaly of a situation or does that happen quite frequently? Do you see that if it does happen as well, are there translation services in place or can that be a struggle to find at the right time? What's the situation like? So where I work, we have like, we're able to do it through a phone or sometimes you can get a physical interpreter in as well and I have to say most of the time or like very very much majority of the time it's a positive thing Mm. of course I really hope that sometimes when I have to say quite specific sexual terms you know rimming fisting sometimes there needs to be clarification of that and sometimes that person may have their own beliefs and they may feel uncomfortable with that and and I I have to put that trust in that person to be translating that you know so I can assess that person's risk properly and I would say my feeling is that it's a very, very, very positive thing and something that I hope makes people feel that they can be comfortable and they don't have to be using translator app on their phone all the time and feel nervous that their English maybe isn't um, what they would describe as good enough or, you know, mm. clear enough or, they'd be, you know, hopefully they can just feel comfortable to talk at their own pace in a language that they feel comfortable in talking in um, and that's translated. It's very rare, but there have been conversations certainly where the translator hasn't felt entirely comfortable. There's been times which we always try and avoid where a family member wants to be there to translate and that can come with its own complexities. Mm-hmm. If that, per- that person, you know, we, we always try and avoid it, like I say, but sometimes there have been situations where you've had to use them at least for a part of the consultation if there's barriers to getting a translator, which can take time. And that can come with, you know, judgments that that person may not be able to talk about um, freely their sexually active sexual activity they may not be able to you know admit to that person something they've been doing which that their culture may look down upon and find unacceptable um, and all of these things are going to potentially lead to that person having a poorer health outcome if there's information they've not been able to share with me I may completely miss something which needs to be treated or something which can lead to protecting them even if it's just some health education as to how to keep safe in the future there come there's a lot of vulnerabilities about just not speaking the same language and I really feel it's our job to try and facilitate that um, and reduce those barriers as much as possible absolutely and I guess it it sounds like you know language is well access it seems like access is while it's quite case by case sometimes you know there's it sounds like there's so much that can be done to increase that access and it makes me wonder you know like what can unlock that access, you know, what can accelerate it, make it more possible? Like, how can we get there so that, so that there aren't those barriers in place, which seem to, you know, unfortunately exclude and lead to worse outcomes? Yeah, I think this is a really great point, Esther. Anyone that's worked in a healthcare setting could relate to those similar situations, you know, particularly, you know, in sexual health, where there's a lot of sensitive information. The other thing I think is access and even just getting someone through the door, like those people have a challenge once they're in the door, right, with the language. Getting people through that door can be a whole different issue on its own. And what I mean by that is I'm talking about awareness of services. So, Mm. you know, people who live in areas that are, you know, less uh, metropolis, like, you know, like not in the city centers, in the outskirts of, you know, the borough might not be aware of healthcare services that are available to them. You know, again, going back to the language, is your information in a language that they can understand so that they know where they're going? And another one, just to go back to really the links between 
poverty and ill health. I've been doing a lot of work recently around rough sleepers and homeless and trying to figure out ways of giving them access to, improving access to healthcare for them, you know, during COVID. And it is becoming more and more apparent how difficult it is for someone who is homeless, who Mm. may or may not have other issues going on, you know, such as drug and alcohol issues. Not all homeless people have drug and alcohol issues. I want to just put that out right there now, but a proportion of them will. A proportion of these people might be, you know, sex workers. A proportion of these people might have families and children. A proportion of these people uh, might have mental health issues. And going to GPs without, you know, having any form of ID or an address and being turned away, that is a huge problem all across Mm. London. And facts are you do not need an an ID or a proof of address to register for a GP. No one should be turned away from being registered for a GP on those grounds. As well as even if you have no recourse to public funds, even if you're not a UK national, if you have a health emergency, you should never be turned away from any urgent care or immediate health care. And there's such appalling, you know, examples of treatment towards these people that I have even, you know, encountered within my own work setting, you know, NHS 111 telling someone that because they're a traveler, they can't access, you know, an urgent dental care, even though they have an abscess in their mouth, you know, even though they have a very badly infected tooth. That's not on, you know, and not all the time does it come from a place of malice. More often than not, we find it comes from a place of misunderstanding and lack of awareness. So it goes back to, for example, a receptionist just doing his or her daily routine, having a checkbox on the registration form, ID, address, and and not necessarily knowing the full situation and not having the confidence or the training to say, oh, wait, this person is homeless. They don't need these things. We can forego that will come up with another way of, um, you know, registering this person. So um, it, it's really about going back to awareness, which sounds about cliche, but, but doing yeah. that awareness for health services and then doing that outreach for the people to get them into that service. I think that two-pronged approach is, is in the most basic terms how we can address some of these issues. Absolutely. And like, as you say, kind of challenging assumptions as well, where they could be, you know, good intentions, but actually like really damaging outcomes um, for people. I was reading something by the group Decolonizing Contraception who recommend, well, they say, you know, if your practice or clinic treats more women of a specific cultural background, it may be worth exploring any common ideas or belief systems they hold in relation to contraception. While certain concerns, for example, that contraception can cause infertility may seem ridiculous to you they may have um, a historical basis which kind of brought again home that sort of challenging assumptions as we go along and not not thinking that actually you know there could be some things going on at the moment which are a real hindrance to that kind of access and um, a hindrance to just the way that we think when we engage with different groups and from this it seems how we treat people I was interested to know kind of from your clinical experience um, and just experience in general if you've come across any kind of almost examples of that or um, you know have come across things from the past that are still happening today that have been quite um, alarming or questionable um, and what we can learn from that. Um, I would say certainly from the from the black perspective I'm someone who's got black heritage but I think you know, a lot of the Black Lives Matters movement has drawn this to a lot of people's attention. Like I say, a lot of people have been talking about this for a long time as well. 
there is a long, long history of mistrust, especially in certain black communities with the healthcare service. This goes back a long time. Part of it is, you know, I would say so like modern day, like my family in Malawi, they're still, you know, educated, you know, empowered in lots of ways and but still have some reservations with healthcare. People very much from our ancestry sometimes rely on natural medicine and this sometimes have more trust in things that people have been using for thousands of years than someone coming over and say, why don't you take this antibiotic three times a day? There's still an element of that in, in our culture and in our history where that, that, you know, which I think is important to acknowledge as well, that it's not just that we are the saviors in Western medicine and we can do everything. We, you know, there has to be an understanding of people's, people's backgrounds, people's culture, people's um, relationship with their health and with medicine. And then also going back kind of to, especially in black America, um, but also, you know, with the time of slavery and colonialism, there's been a lot of, of absolute atrocities. So one example is well known, the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was um, a syphilis study um, of 600 men in America in Tuskegee. I think roughly 400, just to summarise it, 400 out of the 600 men had syphilis at the beginning, um, which was diagnosed, but they were told that they had bad blood. They were then started on this trial, which they weren't um, consented for, um, as they didn't even know their, their diagnosis. And they were, you know, there were treatments for syphilis at the time, but penicillin wasn't fully evidence-based, which is what we use mm. for syphilis now. But 10 years into the trial, it was evidence-based and there were clinics set up for people to be treated for syphilis outside of that study and they were cured of syphilis and let went on to you know have good outcomes whereas the 600 men in this trial were told that they were having this special study um, there was an active active decision for them to not be eligible to, for for treatment in these clinics where they were giving being giving penicillin um, and they were just told you you know you've getting this special treatment you're you don't need to come to these clinics and get this treatment and yeah, it was actively, actively decided that these men would be followed till their death um, over 40 years and onwards, and that they wanted to see what happened when you had advanced syphilis. So like I say, these people had no consent. These people had families. They were having sexual contacts. They were you know, spreading syphilis. It wasn't looked into, I don't think, as far as I know, but their partners could have had babies with what we call congenital syphilis, which is a damaging thing to be born with. It means a syphilis infection from birth, which can affect your development. And, you know, it was the first ethical concern was really, really raised in 1968. This trial started in 1932 and penicillin had been on the market for, for decades and being used for anyone else other than these people. And that was that was quashed. And then it was finally kind of in 1974 they decided that it wasn't actually okay. People looked at it and there was 74. Yeah. That's just like yesterday. Yeah, absolute madness. And you know, the last survivor of that trial died in 2004. There's that. There's also another example I just wanted to mention is there's um something called the sims speculum so any woman who's had a smear test um, will know what a speculum is this is actually not the one you use for a smear test but it's basically a device that people use in gynecology mm. so you can have a look inside at the cervix and your anatomy there there's there's a type of speculum called the sims speculum which is named after james sims who was a man who experimented on black enslaved women without anesthetic and operated doing pre, you know pretty horrific procedures without again of course without their consent 
and you know Jaja and I finished medical school less than a decade ago and we were still being taught that this is the sim speculum it's still in commonplace it's something that I would be in a room with a sim speculum pretty frequently and it's called a sim speculum I think they, they they're now trying to move away from that they've certainly done that with a lot of conditions that we that we were taught in medicine were named after Nazis and eugenicists and they're trying to move away from that and there certainly is a movement to do that but it's I just want that to illustrate that we still have so much um, more that we need to do. Absolutely and Um, and things that are affecting trust um, in a major systemic damaging damaging way and for me that's really bringing to light the effect of that very understandable lack of trust with then the ultimate outcome that you know, we've spoken about before. I mean, Jar Jar, kind of given the work that you've, you know, you've been doing um, in public health and, you know, with, you know, particular parts of the country as well, what kind of other approaches would you suggest um, as a way to kind of overcome these barriers that we really need to? Yeah, yeah, I have, um, I do have some comments on that. I'd also Mm. just like to really reiterate what Frankie just demonstrated so beautifully. And that is, all what I would say contributes to structural racism. And this is the issue of conditioning people to distrust a health system, to adopt yeah. health behaviors in a way because you do not treat them equally because they, you do not treat them with the same respect um, and care as everyone else. And that really, really undermines a health system and any sort of health approaches. And we've seen that, unfortunately, play out this time around in COVID because we know that, you know, distrust in healthcare systems is one of the factors that has been highlighted with groups as a reason for why certain BAME communities didn't access healthcare. That's one small part of why they have worse health outcomes in COVID, but it's a very real part that there was a lack of, of being taken seriously, of being dismissed. You know, Frankie gave the example of not being given painkillers, of of not being treated fairly. All Mm. of these curb people's behaviors. No one wants to be put in a situation where they they aren't treated well. And unfortunately, I I hate to say, releasing the second half of the public health report, I feel also contributed to this distrust because the second half of that public health report really had the meat of everything going on in the Bain community. And when the first part of the report came out, which was just kind of facts and figures and statistics, it left a lot of people wanting more. There was no recommendations, you know. And look, I love my field. There are some fantastic people working in my field doing good every day. And I don't know what all the intricacies are behind what was behind that decision. And I can only speak from my opinion. But um, I definitely feel that whatever was said as, as far as the reason of not releasing that data, you know, whether it be because they... They wanted to, because of what was going on around the world in in big communities and not wanting to interact with that or whatever that was. At the end of the day, the result was the same and it undermined this group yet again. I think moving forward um, on approaches, uh, I think your example quote, um, Esther, that you said of of that clinic looking to the local community um, and and interacting women uh, with women in in that community and figuring out what those women's thoughts are, beliefs are, um, and how to design a service around that. I think that is absolutely key. Community participatory research. This is all about engaging with your community, realizing, you know, I said earlier, there's, you can't create broad interventions across the entire nation. You need to look at what your local community is, who it's constructed 
what types of populations are there, what their local beliefs are. Mm -hmm. um, for, for an example, kind of tying it back into sexual health, you know, some work I did in a local area, late HIV diagnosis. So people who have late diagnosed HIV it is the single biggest risk factor for having the worst health outcomes in HIV is being diagnosed with HIV late. Because if you have HIV diagnosed early, you can be put on treatment and you can live virtually a normal life, a normal life expectancy, as long as you continue to take treatment. So people who are diagnosed late are really, really, really at a big disadvantage. In a local community that I did some work on, 45% of that area, of that group of late diagnosed HIV was um, BME groups again. However, mm. you look at a neighboring right next in the neighboring borough, it was the opposite. And 45-50% was white British. So, mm. you know, you really, you cannot take for granted. Yes, we, we've we said some sweeping figures today, you know, and these are across the nation. There are trends. But you really have to look at your local community. And the same kind of interventions that are going to apply to one area are not going to apply to the other. Another, an example, a simple example of how to do this is in some of the communities in London, there's a big, you know, Orthodox Jewish community mm -hmm. and vaccination. So uptaking vaccines among the community um, has been quite low, you know, historically. And there have been outbreaks of measles, which can really, really affect children really badly, you know, sometimes lead to death and have really poor outcomes. So what people have done is gone in and, and connected with faith leaders and connected with rabbis. People, you know, might not be, have trust in, in healthcare services, but they have trust in their religious leaders. And, mm. you know, establishing that trust and, and relationship with religious leaders and talking to them and talking about vaccines. And, you know, there are examples where we've gotten, you know, rabbis in the community to promote vaccinations and, you know, and, and, and talk about how there's like, you know, some vaccines have porcine, you know, substances in them, but there's also um, others that don't. There, there have been vaccines that created that specifically around these issues and having like local religious leaders promote these things. So that's, a, and, and, and then we've seen uptakes, you know, in those communities after engaging like in, in that kind of way. And that's a really simple example. But what I'm getting at is the people in healthcare really need to start having conversations with the people who are using the healthcare and more mm. importantly, the people who are not using the healthcare and figure Quite. out why, um, and then come together and design health locally around that. I hope that makes sense. It definitely does. Frankie, did you have anything else on that? I think Jaja's just said it so eloquently. And I think, yeah, it's, it really is the responsibility of all of us as individuals. You know, us as healthcare workers, yes, absolutely. It's definitely, definitely our role to kind of find these inequalities and try and, you know, strategize with the people it's directly affecting of what we can do to improve them. And I think, but also as individuals, as human beings, we need to look at what's going on around us as well as in the bigger picture in the world and what can we do? what injustices and inequalities are we seeing that we maybe were not as actively looking for, if you see what I mean? I think it's mm. quite easy to just be like, oh yeah, like the English isn't that good, but I think they're all right. Like, well, maybe they need help. Like maybe they need someone to help them translate when they're trying to pay their bills. Maybe they need someone to help set them up so they can Skype their family overseas. Like why don't just be like a nice person who kind of sees people having inequalities and maybe does something active about it. Like, you know, read books, join forums, follow decolonizing contraception, following, there's so many activist groups out there. You can definitely find someone. I mean, I don't, I think it's not responsibility of, of people, those facing the qualities to specifically say, this is what you should and shouldn't do. You know, only you know your platform and you know what power and what privilege you have. Um, so use that and make it specific to what you see around you. 
and and just be aware exactly as we've been saying the whole time that people can fall into you know more than one group and that there is intersectionality about it and they may fall into one demographic and a different demographic and therefore what you think might affect them may not affect them in that same way because of this other thing affecting them as well. Do you see what I mean? And you just have to be like, see that people are individuals and don't decide for them what they want and what they need. Only they can tell you and your job is to empower them and to raise their voice and to make things happen. Awareness is such, is, awareness is a starting point, you know? Now we're aware, we've had lots of things to raise our awareness around health inequalities. You know, health inequalities is everyone's issue. The, uh, the only other thing I would add to Frankie's list is volunteer. There is so, there's so much great work being done in our voluntary organizations. They just need people. They need hands on deck. They also need funding from the government. So I'm looking at local authority governments and the central government, you know? They need money too, because they do a lot healthcare. Health, well-being would not be the same without our volunteer and community organizations. So if, if there's a passion, if there's something that resonates with you, look up your local organize. There will be an organization doing something about it. Join them. Offer mm. like a few hours of the week, you know, to volunteer. That is a place to start. There's not going to be a single answer. There's no panacea. There's no one cure for health inequalities. It's all of these little steps. We need you to play your part. We also need healthcare to play its part by doing these things and reaching out to, to the communities and making plans with this. We need the government to play its part. We need counselors to back health inequalities and, and you know, push, um, you know, when, when things come through cabinet and come to counselors around, you know, addressing a, a health program that's addressing health inequalities, we need them to pass it. We need them to back it unanimously. We need MPs to support. We need policies you know, mm. all of these like um, risk assessments that bigger organizations are doing, workplaces are doing. So they're starting to understand that we, we need to be seen as individuals. Risk is not one note. We talked about intersections. We need to understand those, in, those intersections and have those conversations. We need all of these things to start tackling health inequalities and, and the big monster that it is. It's going to take time and patience, but it, it can be done. And I think also... We just need to make sure that the interventions and the changes that we do are things that are going to be solid and sustainable. I think everyone, you know, we can all do something like, oh, I've done my bit. And I just really, really hope that the conversations that people are having now, partly triggered by COVID, partly triggered by Black Lives Matter, partly triggered by people being more aware of the injustices to transgender people, as well as all of the other conversations that these are happening. People, this isn't, this is not a trend. This is not something that needs to just be like, look, I've done that thing. I've posted my black square. I've read a book. This needs to be sustainable. And, and I will link this back to, you know, again, about culture. You know, people from a lot of parts of the developing world have seen people come and go. They've built a school or they've done a trial there. And then once they've gone, none of those interventions or the things that people have agreed to have research done is then mm. directly benefiting them. These things are kind of like, you know, there's people that with very, very good intentions who go, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to trial this new treatment there. It's going to help lots of people. But once they've gone, what's going to happen to those people? They're not having any benefit. And that, again, makes people not trust um, that people are actually looking out for them and having their best interests. So any interventions that we make, even in our own community, in our country, you know, in our area, they need to be stuff that have been one based on the people who they're meant to be affecting directly designed for them directly with their needs in mind. And two things that can be sustainable, don't give people false hope, because you've signed one petition, do it, like just get in there and make make the world change. And we're not going back from this.
absolutely I couldn't agree more and it made me think actually just hearing you speak there that it made me think of this phrase that I'd heard a few times like you know change is inevitable and actually I think listening this this kind of like time and this this doing this podcast made me think well actually no it's not you know change isn't change doesn't just happen especially good change relative you know sustained change like you're talking about that takes more than just a single effort and it takes from what I'm hearing um a movement not just a moment so um I think kind of you know what we're not trying to do here is solve it you know this is a really complex topic complex issue but I guess what we're trying to do is have is have the conversation, which I know, you know, we're not the only ones doing it. We're very much joining a wider dialogue, but hopefully in having it and exploring some aspects of it, trying to unpick some of the complexity as well, but crucially having it, maybe um, this gets us a little bit further than we were. And, and hopefully, as Jar Jar said, it starts with awareness. So much comes down to that, but not just, and not just access, but timely access. You know, there's so much, so much that needs to be done, but um, in order to make sure that people have the outcomes that are the best for them um, and that they're involved in the process as well. So um, I think that's probably about all we've got time for for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us again. Um, thanks also to, um, to our terrific team. So Frankie and Jar Jar, our residence experts, for providing more pearls of wisdom. Thank you, Esther. Thanks, Esther. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, to Patrick for editing and to Millie for helping to produce this episode. There's been some kind of various information that's popped up throughout the episode, so you don't have to remember it. We'll pop all the links and info that we've referenced in our SoundCloud and in our Instagram. Um, if you don't follow us, we're at Sexual Transmissions, all one word. Give us a follow. Um, we've actually got our faces on there now, so you can you know, actually kind of see what it looks like. You know, we're, we're kind of still new to this, um, but we're really enjoying doing it and exploring this. So um, please join the conversation and get involved. We want to hear. We're also, you can also give us an email if you want or DM us. We're sxltransmissions at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic um, that you want to hear us talk about or maybe a question that you'd like answered about sexual health. Um, you've probably heard that, you know, I'm learning a lot as I go um, and I certainly have more and more questions. So if you do, please shout and we'll see you very soon. Until next time. Goodbye.